This is a Federal News Network podcast. The White House recently received some expert advice about its signature cybersecurity initiative, namely to get every agency to move to zero-trust systems architectures. But the group warned the project is at risk of becoming an incomplete experiment. We get the highlights now from the chairman of the board of Qualcomm and a longtime member of the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee, Mark McLaughlin. Mr. McLaughlin, good to have you on. Uh, good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. And so the NSTAC was charged with looking at zero trust. What did you find primarily? Let's go over the uh, initial findings here. Sure. Well, the uh, the NSTAC is uh, giving advice to the president on um, items that are related to national security and emergency preparedness. And it's very hard today to uh, to not hear zero trust, you know, wherever you go. Uh, zero trust has actually been around for a while as a, as a concept. And what everybody's attempting to do and what the NSTAC report really is about is to assist, in this case, the government on how to take the, uh, the theories of zero trust, which have been discussed for a long time, and turn them into actual realities, you know, in networking cloud architecture. And so this was a specific response to a, uh, a request from the, uh, the White House as to how do we actually make zero trust real in uh, government architectures on the federal civilian side. And you found that, again, to just reiterate what I said at the opening, is that without significant action, and I'm quoting, the U.S. government risks zero trust becoming an incomplete experiment, a collection of disjointed technical security projects measured in years rather than the foundation of an enduring, coherent, and transformative strategy measured in decades. Maybe elaborate on that for us for a moment. You've been around a long time in technology as well, and you know, there's, there's things that uh, get discussed and come along, and they are at various levels, I would say, of foundational importance, right? They're not, not that anything's unimportant, but they're, some are foundational in nature. And zero trust would absolutely be foundational in nature, meaning it's a building block at the ground level upon which you would build upon for a long time as part of any part of a security uh, architecture and infrastructure. So the point we were making there is, is that when something gets as much attention as something like Zero Trust does, there can be lots of thoughts as to what does it even mean, let alone how to implement it, right? So getting definitional foundation and an architectural foundation is very important because this is a not only a concept, but a, uh, a way to approach uh, security that should be around for decades or will be around for decades. And if you don't start at the right foundation, you can fracture it in many different ways and create interop, you know, uninteroperability or non-interoperability over time, as opposed to something that's very um, cohesive and seamless. And that really was the point we we're trying to make, which is, you know, it's worth it up front to spend time on the definitions and seamless nature of this across networks so that you can build on it for a very long time. In many ways, it reminds me of cloud computing in the sense that the government has awareness that this is where they should be going. But they're always a step behind industry, and it's always a, well, let's just say it, a big bureaucratic effort to get it going in a way that starts to become effective operationally for the government. Well, you know, I think the government has a very important and very difficult task. You know, if you're, uh, you know, I've, I've run some decent sized organizations, but nothing the size of the DOD, right? You know, when you're talking about technology as an example, you know, when you have these generational things, and, you know, Tom, you, you and I've been around a block for a while, about every, you know, decade or so, you get a couple of things that come along that are really important. SaaS, cloud, right, e-commerce, right? Uh, all the way back to uh, the DNS, you know, the internet. And the adoption of those takes a long time. And particularly when you're, if you're responsible for the adoption of that across a very wide base, like you, like the government would be, um, you know, it makes sense to take your time to understand things and roll them out. What happens a lot 
is um, there's a lot of uh, energy and excitement about some ideas. People pile in on them and they try to do the right thing and get in front of it without completely understanding what it actually means. That's that's just very natural in technology. There's a famous you know chart about the hype and trough, you know, of disillusionment and then mainstream, right? You know, and, uh, you know, catching the angle of uh, going to mainstream is very important on something that would last uh, for decades. So I think, you know, cloud's a very good analogy there where, uh, you know, there's a rush to the cloud, right? Uh, you know, 10 years ago, a rush to the cloud, all for good reasons. But actually thinking through what would that look like and how would you implement it took, you know, 10 years, right, to figure it out, particularly in security. And, you know, we didn't even know what the right questions were, let alone what the answers were. <laughs> and I think that would be the case with Zero Trust as well as a very thoughtful approach that will last us for decades as a foundational element. We're speaking with Mark McLaughlin. He's a member of the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee. He's also chairman of the board of Qualcomm. And looking at the recommendations that you have to make this completion for Zero Trust, it seems like there's a combination of accountability measures some technical measures, and some organizational measures to make sure that it does become institutionalized or a permanent decades-long process. So maybe just run through what the NSTAC is basically recommending here. Yeah, sure. You know, in the report itself, there's uh, 24 recommendations. I won't try to go through them all, right, because that's, that's a lot. But, you know, what we really try to do is to set out an approach so that we could go faster on the convergence of zero trust architectures and and trusted digital identities as well, which you think is a key part of that. So that was one you know goal of ours in doing this. The second thing we wanted to do is say, where are the known gaps in what is this emerging ZTA, zero trust architecture and digital ID implementations? Um, and very importantly in that is make sure we take uh, privacy considerations into account as well, because you know, without that, things are, you know, kind of dead on arrival, rightfully, right? You know, and then the third is uh, to provide recommendations where we could have standard-based uh, protocols so that digital IDs could be created and bound when appropriate to end users so that that can actually help in national security and emergency uh, preparedness so that we've got a standards-based approach. When you don't have a standards-based approach, you get a lot of fracturing. You know, you might ultimately come to something, but it can be very painful uh, along the way. So those those were the three main things we were attempting to do uh, with the report, you know, before we got into any specific, hey, here's some actionable things that the government should do, where it should live, you know, who should administrate, all those things are included in there as well. Sure. And I noticed that you have some specific assignments, potentially anyway, for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency here too. Yeah. For, you know, we are recommendation administratively organizationally would be CISA would take, you know, take charge of this, right. And set up a, a federal run by CISA meeting for a civilian zero trust program office. And they should be that, uh, they should be that entity in the government to do that. We think they're, you know, where they sit in the government and their expertise is exactly what's needed. Here. And also one of them is to advance zero trust in international standards bodies. And I guess my question is, is there, are there any standards for what constitutes zero trust? And should there be? And what's the status of those standards making? It's early. So as far as there being anything widely adopted yet in the United States, let alone internationally, I'd say it's, uh, it's early innings, to use a baseball analogy, right? Um, but we do know from experience that for any of these, I'll call it tectonic, very large technology shifts to become foundational in nature. If you don't have a standards-based approach, like I said, it fractures. And then it's a very globally connected world. And so if those approaches are not trying to take into account the global infrastructure, you end up with fractured things globally, right? That can work, but it really reduces the value in any geography then about 
uh, the interoperability. So, you know, we really want to like to focus on the standards bodies and trying to get some level of commonality there that people can build upon. And beyond standards, of course, there's two ways of looking at cybersecurity, zero trust. One, do they have it? Does it seem to meet the criteria that are commonly understood to be zero trust? But then there's the effect of it. And it's very hard to measure cybersecurity effects because you're measuring a negative of something that's not happening. So what's your best thinking on how the government can ensure both that it does have that compliance with what is best practice and also begin to understand the return on investment by the lack of something happening? Great question and uh, something that bedevils many off efforts, right? And so in this case, what we were recommending is that the there's the capability to have the transparency for where you're starting and the progression path, and also the accountability then for how you're doing along the way. And one of the beginning points in that, which we recommended, was that CISA would be established as what we call the Zero Trust Shared Security Service for discoverable assets on the internet. It's a truism in security, cybersecurity, that you can't you can't protect anything you don't see. So everything starts with visibility, and that should be the case here as well. And so, you know, CISA playing a role where they are providing a visibility mechanism into these networks to say on a dynamic basis, not a static basis, where are you now? Where are you now? Where are you now? Right. And then the beginning point, when we laid out in the report, sort of a, a progression path to say phase zero of ZTA would look like this, phase one would look like this, so that there's a way to have a, um, a referenceability on an absolute basis about where am I as an organization on the path to ZTA, and then also a referenceability on a relative basis as to where am I compared to others so we can have best practice issued. And the final question uh, with respect to zero trust has to do with non-human entities that are accessing networks. I don't hear enough talk about how zero trust can extend to the bots, to the artificial intelligence algorithms, and to other non-human, non-device entities. Is that an important part of it, though? I think so, and I think it will be continually for the reason you just said. And that's part of the, you know, two of the recommendations really tying to that. The one I just mentioned, which is to have a internet accessible asset discovery. An asset, in this case, does not mean human, right? Or necessarily just human. It's all assets, many of which are increasingly robotic in nature. And then the uh, this, the second is in order to to understand uh, using AI and ML, I'm not, not trying to get buzzy here on the buzz terms, but... No, we're used uh, to those two terms a lot here, yeah. so... <laughs> well, using those two terms then is, is when you have that kind of uh, asset discovery capability, making sure who's on the other end. And this kind of goes into the identity piece of this as well, which is who slash what is on the other end, really, you know, as opposed to what it appears to be, right? So that's an important part of this as well. And by the way, what happens to the report at this point? It's going to the White House, and uh, we'll report this out to the uh, the president here shortly. And uh, hopefully, you know, it's adopted and becomes part of the policy of the, of the United States government. And I'd just like to take a second real fast time before you wrap up just to also thank my colleague, John Donovan, who were co-chairs of this report. John is the current uh, chairman of the NSTAC, and uh, working with him has been a pleasure. Mark McLaughlin is a member of the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee, chairman of the board of Qualcomm. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to the NSTAC report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on 
bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do 
set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, 
always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial.